Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. My dear faithful, it is said of revolutions that they are not democratic movements. Revolutions are not really movements of the people, spontaneous uprisings of people in order to overthrow a political order. Because the people of themselves are always conservative. They don't like change, the grassroots constitution of the citizens. People typically do not want a new order. And so if revolutions are to succeed, are to happen, it's only going to be in one of two ways. One way is by violence, where the people are forced by physical force to accept a new political regime. The second way is by trickery, where a new regime is imposed upon the people, but it happens so slowly and so subtly that they do not realize that a revolution has taken place until it is over. They accept a new political order without realizing that they're accepting a new political order. When radicals undertake a revolution, they use the first way. They use violence. And this is how the French Revolution worked, and this is always how the communist revolutions have worked, because communism believes in violence as the salvation of the human race. Class struggle, the conflict of peoples, is what saves the human race in the eyes of the communists. So they always use violence. But when liberals undertake a revolution, they use trickery. They use subtlety and deceit. This is how what is called the sexual revolution took place, through trickery and deceit. These revolutions of the liberals, they work like the famous story of the frog in the pan. And you have the heat on. And at first the heat is very mild and the frog is very comfortable. And you turn the heat up slowly, very slowly. And you keep turning it up. And the frog does not realize that the temperature is increasing to such a level that eventually he's going to die. The heat is so intense that eventually it kills the frog without the frog realizing that he's in big danger. So when the liberals undertake revolution, they act in this way. They make very slow and very subtle changes in society over a period of decades, or even over a period of a century. Because the changes are small and slow, the people do not realize that the entire fabric of their society is being overturned. The changes that are made seem to be disconnected. They don't seem to be part of a concerted effort to cause a revolution, to introduce a new political order, but in reality, the changes are part of a complete package. And that complete package is the introduction of a new morality into society. Or perhaps we can more accurately say a, an amorality into society. What liberals want, above all, is to overturn all rules of morality. They want to legalize immorality and to a certain degree to condemn traditional morality. So I brought up the sexual revolution as an example of this, and I would just like to 
speak today a bit about that revolution in connection with today's epistle. You know, the, the sexual revolution is generally said to have taken place in the 1960s. But, in fact, it predates the 1960 and it postdates the 1960s as well. It just happens that the 1960s were the time where the most important changes took place in the, the overturning of Judeo-Christian values in, in our society and the replacement of those values with um, the rampant immorality that we have today. So, in the 60s, married couples were given the so-called right to birth control in 1965. Then, divorce was made legal in 1969. And as you know, in 1973, with the Roe v. Wade decision, abortion was made legal. So these were huge changes in overturning traditional moral values. But these things were only, as I say, a more notable period in a history that started well before the 1960s. You've probably heard the name of Margaret Sanger. Well, she opened the first birth control clinic in 1916. And at that time, she was put into jail because it was against the law. Birth control was against the law. So she was put into jail for 30 days. And as soon as she got out of jail, she reopened her clinic and kept running it. And a couple decades later, due to her persistence, in 1938, a judge lifted the federal ban on birth control. And this caused a shifting of people's attitude towards sexual relationships. And it opened the door for that decision in 1973 of legalizing abortion. It made possible a concerted campaign because once you reach one hurdle of the loosening of morals, then what do you do? You just go on to the next hurdle. You just keep plugging away until eventually all morality has been leveled. So after the Roe versus Wade decision in 1973, the sexual revolution obviously continued from victory to victory. Homosexuality was legalized in 2003. Same-sex marriage was legalized just three years ago, 2015. Believe it or not, fornication is still a crime in seven states in 2018. But obviously, no one enforces that law. Adultery is still a crime in 16 states in 2018. But absolutely nobody enforces that law. But those laws are still on the books as a sort of relic from the past consciousness of immorality that, that our society once had. Meanwhile, we know that not only does our society, society no longer condemn these behaviors, but rather our society encourages them. With our mass media, with all of the, the flood of immorality on the internet, on the television, on our uh, Hollywood industry, the behavior of immorality is portrayed as something liberating, as something freeing, as something fulfilling, whereas the traditional morals are portrayed as being stuffy and outdated, constricting, enslaving, and so on. So we 
we have to ask our, uh, ourselves this question, how did we arrive at this point? How did the liberals execute this long-term project of replacing Christian morality with atheistic amorality? How did the frog get cooked? There's obviously many factors involved in this long-term process, but one of the most important factors is the use of words, the use of language. If you control the language, you control the reality. So liberals know how to manipulate words in order to serve their purposes. One of the most important examples that I want to bring up is the use of the word right, human rights. So the language of human rights has been around for ages. We've spoken about rights. In a sense, the language of human rights has its origin with Christianity, with Catholicism. Catholicism was the first sort of, uh, Christianity was the first thing that, that brought up the fact that people have God-given rights. So liberals keep this word right, but they change the meaning of the word. They give it a different meaning, even though the sound and the spelling is exactly the same. And people don't realize that the meaning of a word that they've always used has changed. They've always liked that word. This, the, the word human rights sounds very nice. But now we've got a new meaning behind that word. And as a result, people began to accept things as being a human rights that they would never have considered to be a right before. Traditionally, the word right in our Christian tradition has always corresponded to what is right. It corresponds to what is morally lawful, to what is good to do. In other words, you have a right to do what is right. And you have no right to do what is wrong. You know the saying, error has no rights. Evil has no rights. That's the traditional meaning of right. So how do we know what is right and what is wrong? We know by consulting what God has established. So God designs the universe, he creates the universe, and he confers upon the universe certain laws. And when the universe operates according to those laws, it's right and it's good, it's ordered, it's wholesome, it's right. And when it goes against those laws, then it's wrong. So human beings also have laws, we're part of the universe, so there, God has established laws for us, and we give those laws a special name, the name of morality. So, all human beings have a right to do what corresponds to their nature, to do what corresponds to what God has made them. If we do what, what we're made to do according to the design of God, then we're doing what's right. That's what's right. And if we go against the design of God, we're doing what's wrong. So we all have a God-given right to do what God has made us to do. And no one can take away those rights from us. These rights come from an authority that is higher than any mere human authority. They are rooted in the overlordship of God himself 
and as such they are utterly inalienable. No one can take away from you the right to do what is right. Any society that is in, in its right mind defends these God-given rights and opposes whatever is opposed to those human rights. So a sane society will defend the right of people to be virtuous, to practice virtue, to the right to be just, the right to be prudent, the right to be moderate, the right to be chaste, to be humble, the right of people to worship God, to pay to God the homage that is due to him. Whereas a sane society will see these rights as rights to be cherished, as rights when they are exercised that will lead to the happiness of the citizens. It's the only way that citizens will be happy if they're exercising their God-given rights to do what is right. And so such a society will protect these rights with laws and they will condemn any behavior that takes away those rights or hinders them. In other words, a sane society will condemn immorality and will punish those who commit immorality. And we know that, that this is how things work in, in good families. You don't get rewards for doing what is wrong. You get punishment for what's doing what's wrong. And when a society enshrines virtue, protects virtue by laws, the result is very good. Um, when immorality is punished, people understand that they have no right to do what is wrong, and they are encouraged to be virtuous and to avoid evil. And this is the traditional notion of human rights and the consequences that this notion has on the design of societies and the framing of our laws. But as I said, what the liberals did was they got rid of the old meaning of right and they replaced it with a new meaning. They kept the word, they still use the word right, they still speak of human rights, but right no longer means a person's entitlement to be virtuous, a person's entitlement to lead a moral life and to have his moral life protected. Today, right means something else. Rights today are not seen as coming from God's design of the universe. Rights are seen as coming from us. We're seen as having a right to create rights, to manufacture rights. Today, a right is what you want to do. Whatever you desire, by the fact that you desire it, you have a right to do it. Do you have a desire to have sexuality without responsibility? Then you have a right to birth control. Do you have a desire not to be tied down by a marital bond? Then you have a right to divorce. Do you have a desire to kill the child in your womb in order to refuse motherhood? Then you have a right to abortion. Do you have a desire to be a homosexual, to marry someone of the same sex, to change your gender? If that's your desire, if that's what you want, then you have a right to do it. 
the major difference between these two understandings of right, these two notions of right that I've just explained, is that the Catholic notion of right is objective. It's based on reality. The reality around us that God has established. It's something that's outside of us and can be verified by empirical data, by just looking at how human beings are designed. The liberal notion of right is subjective. It comes from us. It comes from the individual desires of human beings. It's based on one's feelings. It's not based on reality. The reason that I bring up these two notions of right on the Sunday, as I say, is because St. Paul speaks about these two different types of rights in today's epistle. He explains that we are not debtors to the flesh, but we are debtors to the spirit. He makes it clear that we have no duty to indulge our flesh. That when our flesh is clamoring out for pleasure and for gratification, it does not have a right to ask for gratification. And there's no obligation on our part to indulge it. And you will not be a stunted human being, an enslaved human being, if you refuse your flesh. Rather, the debt that we owe is a debt to the Spirit. We owe it to our soul to keep it from sin so that our soul might live forever. That is the real debt that we have that corresponds to our true God-given rights. Now the liberals try to pretend that we are debtors to the flesh. That whenever our flesh clamors out for some gratification, then you'd best indulge your flesh. And if you don't, you will be a stunted human being, you will be an enslaved human being, you will be a miserable human being, or so on. Consider what they think of priestly celibacy. They think it makes people, they think it makes, it makes men into monsters, into truncated human beings. So, when the liberals turn acts of immorality into rights, they are saying that we are debtors to our flesh. If the flesh calls out for sexual activity of any nature whatsoever, then you have a right to answer the call of your flesh. It's as if you owe it to your flesh to satisfy its lustful desires. And because you owe it immoral activities, you also owe it everything that will enable you to be immoral. If having children stands in the way of unlimited sexual activity, if it stands in the way of indulging the flesh whenever it calls out for indulgence, then you must be provided the ways of doing away with children. This is how liberals come up with the language of reproductive rights. Reproductive rights, saying that all women have a right to birth control, they have a right to abortion, and if you take that away from them, you're denying them a fundamental human right. You have a right, they claim, to sexuality without any responsibility. Now, St. Paul tells us what happens if we act as if we are debtors to the flesh. 
if we manufacture so-called artificial rights for our sexual passions, the primary result is death. Death and destruction. And St. Paul is absolutely correct when we have innumerable manifestations of this in today's culture, which is rightly called a culture of death because it is a culture of unbridled satisfaction of blind, irrational passion, which leads to the breaking down of human beings and human society. Once you make it a right for you to do whatever you desire to do, a right to follow whatever your passions dictate, then very soon you have a, a right to prevent life from being conceived, to kill life once it is conceived, to form sexual unions that cannot bring forth life, and to terminate your own life when your passions are tired of living. And these are all the things that are going on in today's culture of death. And in, in the end, we have to recognize that the so-called rights of liberals are simply a right to die, a right to put oneself and others to death. Because the wages of sin is death. It's a right to commit sin. It's a right to be immoral. And therefore, it's a right to destroy yourself. And so, when you invent rights for immorality, you're really only giving people the right to be suicidal. There's a second characteristic of these rights being debtors to the flesh that St. Paul points out. And that characteristic is slavery. To follow the desires of the flesh is really to enslave oneself. The desires of the flesh, they do not follow reason, they have no limit, and they cannot be satisfied. No matter how hard you try, you cannot satisfy them. And so once someone starts to habitually indulge his flesh, he loses the ability to control himself. For instance, if you have a gambler that's in the presence of a slot machine, even if he's on his last $20, he will not be able to resist to use that money to play. If you have an alcoholic who's in the presence of a bottle of whiskey, even though he knows the whiskey is going to make him miserable, he will not be able to resist drinking that bottle of whiskey. If you have a porn addict in the presence of unfiltered internet access that's private, even if he's made a resolution not to view pornography, he will not have the power to resist these people because they've indulged their passions, because they've made themselves debtors to the flesh. They are slaves. Whenever their passions clamor for anything, they have no power to resist. They give it in almost automatically. It's almost not even a rational act. So instantaneous is their answer to the call of the flesh. And this is the very definition of slavery. When we're being controlled by something outside of us, the alcoholic is controlled by the bottle of whiskey, the gambler is controlled by the slot machine, the porn addict is controlled by the internet access, and they have no power to make their own decisions. And if you take away anything from today's sermon, it has to be this. 
that you never become confused when liberals speak to you about freedom. The freedom that they promise, the freedom to sin, the freedom to indulge yourself is not a true freedom because it leads to you losing control of your life. That is slavery. That is not freedom. So when they use that word freedom, do not be confused. It's not a real freedom. It's a charade. It's an illusion. It's actually slavery, not freedom. Their freedom is the freedom to destroy ourselves, the freedom to enslave ourselves to our irrational passions. It's a freedom for slavery. The freedom that St. Paul speaks about, the freedom is the freedom of the sons of God. And it's the complete opposite of that liberal freedom. Those who seek to live a moral life and so live up to their God-given rights are the freest people in the world because they have the most control over themselves and over their destinies. It's the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that gives each of you a power. That when your passions rise up, and when these movements, these emotions, these feelings, these desires rise up in you, and want to push you to do something that's irrational and which will destroy you, you have the power to push them back down and to say, no, this is not for my good. This is not in my interest. I refuse with the whole of my being, with with the, the upper part of my being, I refuse that movement of the lower part of our being. So by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have the strength to refuse death, to refuse to die with everybody else. When someone refuses everything that might destroy him, we would have to say that he is acting with the greatest independence. He is the freest he can be because he is not acting under the influence of anything that is contrary to him. He is acting in complete harmony with what he is. And this is our blessed privilege as baptized Catholics, as sons and daughters of God. We are able to live according to our rights. We do not deprive ourselves of our rights by doing what is wrong. You have not received the spirit of bondage, says St. Paul to you, but you have received the spirit of the adoptions of sons, whereby we cry, Father. Spirit, as we know, represents life, while matter represents death. Things that are spiritual and are not material cannot be destroyed. You cannot destroy purely spiritual things. Whereas all material things, as we all know from common experience, if you have a house, if you have anything material, a refrigerator, a car, all these things will break down. They must break down when they are material. Material bonds are broken. They are ended by death. But spiritual bonds cannot be broken. And when we are members of this spiritual family, when we are sons and daughters of God, and we live up to that title of sons and daughters of God, we receive an inheritance. And that inheritance is, quite simply, life. A life that lasts forever. A life without end. A spiritual life that can never, ever be destroyed. The rights of the liberals are rights to die and lead to eternal death, 
the rights of God are rights to live and lead to eternal life. So don't allow yourself to be confused about who you are with all the rhetoric that surrounds us in our liberal society. Don't be confused about what your rights are. You have a right to do what is right before God. You have no right to do what is wrong. The right to wrong is not a human right. So seek to live up to that title of being a son and daughter of God. Crave with all the ambition of your soul that inheritance that comes to the sons and daughters of God, the eternal inheritance of an endless life in heaven. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.